Hello and welcome to Core of the Matter, the public forum, the public affairs forum for ninety point three The Core. I'm your host James Boyle. Um, a New Jersey law passed in May 2017 for the first time required counties to have plans to issue code blue alerts when the temperature is forecast to drop below 25 degrees without precipitation and 32 with, or when the wind chill would be zero degrees or less for at least two hours. Before that law, um, according to Rene Kubiatis, the executive director of the Anti-Poverty Network of New Jersey and a board member of the New Jersey Coalition to End Homelessness, said that, quote, there was no guarantee people could find shelter during the very cold hours in the wintertime. This was a way of guaranteeing that there were shelters during these times or new programs were created to provide that shelter in each county. While a positive step in the right direction, the lack of specificity in the Code Blue law led to confusion and a lack of cohesion among different municipalities and counties. In its original version, the law mandated that counties have a plan of action to establish Code Blue warming shelters. However, there were virtually no stipulations as to what those plans should be. Some counties have a well-funded nonprofit organizational infrastructure that they rely on, while others rely on more governmental institutions and organizations. Um, Some Code Blue shelters consistently offer food, while others are not able to. And some counties offer consistent transportation to warming shelters when a code blue is called, but other counties do not. The complexities and limitations of Code Blue began to be addressed with recent changes in the law. In January, New Jersey Senate Law S3511 was amended to authorize certain health care and social service resources to be made available during Code Blue Alert. These services include the administration of vaccines, substance abuse intervention and treatment referral services, mental health assessment and treatment referral services, and the provision of social services deemed appropriate by the commissioner. More significantly, the amendment changed the temperature and weather condition threshold to trigger a code blue alert. Instead of below 25 degrees without precipitation and below 32 degrees with precipitation, the amendment to the law now requires all counties to call code blue when temperatures fall below 32 32 degrees regardless of precipitation. These changes to the legal regime governing temporary shelter services for the homeless community in New Jersey have had positive effects. Counties across the state are now calling Code Blue more frequently, opening up um, virtually unprecedented access to shelter services during the winter month. However, the changes have also created new challenges. Vince Jones, a coordinator for the Atlantic City Office of Emergency Management, says that, quote, we felt that they did their homework when it came to the weather part of it and how temperatures affect the body. They did their due diligence there. However, it's going to create more code blue nights and there's going to be more costs involved and it just didn't get addressed. The lack of funding to support the changes in the law demonstrates some of the limitations of a legal approach to social justice for the homeless. While there are many areas in the state and around the country that spend outsized energy and resources on pretending homelessness doesn't exist, laws like Code Blue that recognize the plight and needs of the homeless are important. However, homelessness is less so an issue of recognition and more so a problem of distribution. In addition, these amendments fail to get to the underlying irrationality and dehumanization that guides emergency shelter policy in states like New Jersey. Laws like Code Blue demonstrate the unjust reality in which homeless people's ability to find shelter and basic life necessities is determined by the arbitrary amount of mercury in a thermometer. And while politicians can continue to pat themselves on the back for realizing on paper what homeless activists and organizers have been saying for decades, that this is an exploding crisis demanding action, these people in power have done little to fundamentally restructure how government institutions approach the homeless community. Back in December, Newark filed a federal lawsuit against New York City for the city's special one-time assistance program, also known as SOTA, which had caseworkers pressure eligible people in shelters to move outside of New York City, primarily across the Hudson River in places like Newark and New Jersey, in Jersey City. 
while the Newark government maintained that it was not concerned with the influx of low-income people themselves, but rather the living conditions they were placed in, the fight between the two cities eliminates the ways in which governments would rather fight with each other over who claims the responsibility to take care of the homeless than actually address the problem of homelessness itself. So, how do we ensure that legal reforms are actually materially supported? How can we provide the vital resources to the homeless community while also working against the systems and structures that render those same resources inaccessible for so many people? And how can we move beyond the paternalistic or outright denialistic frameworks that so many governments use in approaching homelessness and creating meaningful mechanisms for redistribution and permanent supportive housing? Today, we are joined by Walter Harris, founder and executive director of Supporting the Homeless, Innovatively Loving Others, a grassroots homeless organization based in New Brunswick. A formerly homeless person himself, Harris has built an organization that utilizes a unique organizing model, blending human rights advocacy, public and mental health support, interfaith engagement, person-centered case management, and direct on-the-ground outreach and intake. Shiloh has struck an effective balance between addressing the precarity and direct social needs of the homeless community while also confronting the systems and structures that produce homelessness. In many ways, Shiloh has filled the gaps in the legal and social support systems, working in the shadows. 70% of the homeless referrals in New Brunswick have come from Shiloh. They are both strengthening the, the continuum of care and holding faith organizations, nonprofits, and government institutions to do their job within this continuum. Walter, I think this is your fourth time on the core. You're now a core regular, so welcome to the show again. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Um, so I guess that we can just start with just getting your initial reactions to these recent changes in, in the Code Blue Law. I'm a little more chipper. <laughs> I'm a little more chipper. Um, Arbitrary Mercury. <laughs> Arbitrary Mercury. So I respect that so much how you said that. That cannot be spoken enough. We might have to put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> but um, Arbitrary Mercury is just it. Because of the fact... Speak, I'm sorry. Um, speaking to the cold, the code blue. And to put this in much more of a bigger narrative mm -hmm. and to combine it even going years past, right? Is that... When you speak to 2000, you said 17, 2017, right? The, code, the original code law, I believe it's yeah. 2017. Yeah, yeah. 2017, yeah. that was S1088 mm -hmm. with um, Christie. Yes. However, we broke that down with another formerly homeless person that Shiloh assisted. And we found in that bill, when you really break it down, in the final part of the bill, it says 32 regardless of precipitation. Wow. But it was never appropriate. It was never pushed further. And it was just stagnated. Prior to 2017, 2017 came into light due to the M25 initiative out in Gloucester County. And a pastor found someone dead, we spoke about it the last time, um, found someone dead in the Salvation Army box. That warranted him to get at his local municipality and do what I did, became passionate and outspoken for voiceless folks. Mm -hmm. Being outspoken for the voiceless, had some of them speak up, to match his testimony, show his discontentment, galvanize the community stakeholders, a law was pushed. It took, what, four years, it got, it got cleared, but it wasn't mandated. It wasn't mandated. Now, within our municipality, we have, and how they're, how they're operating here in New Jersey, is that it goes to the Office of Emergency Management. The Office of Emergency Management calls down to a municipality, and that municipality has the right to say yes or no, you know? And what we were finding, that this was inhumane, that mm. it was below 32 degrees that a certain municipality was not calling code blues. So Charlotte took it upon... Uh, the, the the courage and bravery and human rights and respect and what people were not saying and scared to do and we just ended up doing it. And what I'm speaking openly about now is the fact we were running shelters when this bill was not in effect, you yeah. know? And I think it's uh, the S3511 has a sister bill, S3442 or something, S3422, mm -hmm. I believe, somewhere around there. But that bill is the code blue thing. But what you're want, what we want to clearly get out to the world, when we get out to this community, is that without appropriating bills like this, it can it can it can be challenged by organizations and individuals in high power that are saying, you know what? Well, we don't need funding for these safety net programs. We don't need funding for that. We need more funding for our military, or we need more funding yeah. for other things. 
But what's more important than the human condition? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But it's the value. They don't value the homeless community. For capitalism to survive, you need a surplus of poverty. Yeah, it's true. It's it's an ugly truth. So what I've learned from suffering homelessness myself is how to navigate these systems. And that's what talks at 3511. When you navigate these systems, the first line of business with any homeless person you encounter is to, with all your mental capacity, is assess their well-being, their health, right? Mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever it may be, and develop a sense of trust, right? But now when you get intensive or when you get into an emergency shelter type setting, you develop that relationship automatically because you're spending hours upon hours with this person, you know, and then they're telling you their trauma. So if there's a wellspring of disconnected services, why not connect these services and make this individual aware of them? Mm -hmm, And that's what we've seen through Shiloh's work by making people aware of resources that they knew not about or didn't know how to access. And taking that time out to say, here's how you access this. Here's how you use this. Oh, you want me to speak on your behalf? Oh, matter of fact, as a coordinator of an emergency shelter, we have the power now to write a birth certificate. And by writing a birth certificate, I'm sorry, we have the power to write a letter to Vital Statistics in Trenton and get someone a birth certificate. That's four points. And guess what? If I don't have a shelter and the police stole my birth certificate last night, that's very important for me to move into housing. Mm -hmm. Because without an identification... I'm not eligible for any of HUD's programs, right? Yeah. So 3511 is paramount, especially in the health sector of New Brunswick, where you have hospitals, forgive me, but you have hospitals dumping people to the streets. Why? Because the 40-bed shelter is at mass capacity. Why? Because the bill wasn't in play yet that they had an emergency shelter. How many nights did I did not sleep? I forgot. I haven't slept right now. I just ran an emergency shelter last night. And then I went out to help another gentleman get into a program. So I'm out here putting my life on the line and putting my energy and my blood, sweat, and tears into something that I believe and that what I've suffered and what I know is right, humanely. You know? But 3511 is very important for the public to know about, especially I challenge all the nurses, all the doctors, the CEO of Robert Wood Johnson, of St. Peter's, the nursing school over there on Bias Street. Pull up. Pull up. 220 South 6th Avenue. Pull up. We need your help. We yeah. need public health support. We have people immunocompromised. You know, we have people that have chronic conditions that is high risk and not low risk. We need your support. And that's what this bill is talking about. It's talking about bringing the public health, bringing the health commissioner down or reporting to the health commissioner. Reach out. Shiloh, New Jersey at gmail.com. Reach out. We would love to have a discussion with you. Yeah. Reach out to the local New Brunswick municipality and tell them to fund Shiloh's organization because we are a complete organization with connections to legal services, with connections to housing and landlords, with connections, with connections to hunger relief, connections to case management and connections to public health on every single level from infectious diseases to you got a boo-boo after you got punched in the face. We will take care of you. Now, with those things in play, without a physical building and without in office space or things of that nature, we have to constantly pop around in the shadows of the streets. And that's advantage to what we're doing because we're dealing with a population that's very obscured for reality. And they stay in pockets of the community that a lot of people don't venture to. So we explore those communities where people are scared to go and try to, with all our heart and empathy, have people accept services they've been refusing for years Mm -hmm. or they've been stereotyped to believe that it's going to end up a certain way. And then we work between both people, the homeless community and the programs. And do not get me wrong. I'm not saying all these programs are bad. These programs are great. I have much respect for the PATH program, for Coming Home, from Eliza Promise, from Women Aware, to all those programs. From Eric B. Chandler, I love you guys, you know. But the moral of it is the fact these are very vulnerable people. And without the community and without everybody backseating their egos and trusting in Walter Harris, who's the most impacted person walking them streets, trained by a lot of these executive directors that have left this area due to corrupt politics. And I will say, and you know who I am, but I stand here in the gap. I stand here in the gap as a voice to the voiceless, to the vulnerable people, and as a tri-chair to the poor people's campaign to go national and to make sure that this message gets out. Mm-hmm. To know that we need Rutgers to step up. There's 30,000 students out here and you walk by the homeless every day. Unfortunately, there's a weird policy at the dining hall. Unfortunately, there's a weird policy at the library. But what are these policies against? Criminalizing homeless people and not valuing them as humans. 
And all Shiloh was saying in short is we are providing unfiltered dignity to the least of us. Yeah. Period. And you're kind of speaking to like the need for coordination, how all these groups are doing these fantastic things, but it's not really having the impact it needs to without the kind of coordination about housing it all in one kind of specific site that homeless people can go to and receive the continuum of care that they need. And Shiloh is actually currently running, you were saying a code blue shelter, very regularly in the Highland Park Community Center. Um, Shout out to the mayor of Highland Park. Mayor Gabriel Mittler. Awesome mayor. Reformed Church of Highland Park, shout out. Yes. Shout out to <laughs> um, Aunt MF Memorial Temple. Shout out to all the interfaith communities and the soccer moms and everybody, the quilt club, everyone that has supported us because yeah. that's what it takes. It takes a community. It takes a village. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've noticed um, maybe a change before and after, because this was happening both before and after this law change. Yes. Um, but if you haven't noticed a change, maybe just speak to the fact that this kind of demonstrates how it works, how the potential of a permanent shelter for homeless people in New Brunswick and across Middlesex County. I've been waiting for you to answer that question, to ask that question. <laughs> been waiting for you to ask that question. Testimonial without any names. Fact. Most people realize in New Brunswick, it's majority men on the streets. Mm-hmm. Two females and a little child, an adolescent child, came into our shelter. Homeless thing in the car, right? Mm -hmm. At this time, we still had corrupt policies within the shelter that was allowing us to use one room inhumanely. So we said, we'll do our best and we'll monitor you. So we brought a woman that had a liking for her child and that was being nice and courteous and giving her different things to make her feel welcome. So then we took it upon ourselves and we asked around and they said they have a partition. And a partition is something you can close, an enclosure around something. And to get a better uh, visual of this, imagine a a military cot. And a military cot enclosed in a 45 degree at the right angle around two cots because the little boy was sleeping with mom and grandma was right next there, which is her mother, right? Mm -hmm. So now there was no problem. There was nothing but respect. The same way that the Rutgers community take care of one another was what we seen in that in that building. And it was majority, not the volunteers, but the homeless community, helping the homeless community and making sure that that child was okay, making sure when that mom had socks and shoes. And then we would follow up and just monitor the situation and play with the child and talk, give coloring, whatever it may be. And then guess what happened? Because we were able to, certify this person and this family as homeless certified unprecedentedly rapid rehousing is considered from three months to six months you rapidly house someone these people were placed into permanent housing with vouchers within less than two three weeks Mm -hmm. that's unprecedented yeah and that's all because a law was morally applied to human rights yeah let's talk about it let's really talk about it you know and like it's a blessing. It's a blessing to have it, but there's still more work to be done. We can't sit here and celebrate and be like, oh, wow, we got a shelter going. Let me break down the horrible reality. It's a seasonal shelter. Homeless or homeless, 365. And let me enlighten the public again. There's also something called Code Red that the OEM administers. And Code Red when it's a severe hot weather. So just imagine a senior citizen that's that's homeless in the street that needs to breathe clean fresh air and he can't because the humidity index is too high he may need a he may need a cooling center and a glass of water is that too much to ask yeah i mean that kind of problem is only going to continue to get worse too when you have like climate change and just extreme heat extreme heat becoming more and more common um and you're talking about too like the power of kind of building a space where a kind of collective support network can emerge within the homeless themselves and really kind of moving beyond the paternalistic ways that I think a lot of homeless people are treated. They're kind of infantilized, thrown into these systems Mm -hmm. where they don't really have much agency. Absolutely. Um, And a lot of it is from the politicians themselves creating these kinds of systems. Mm -hmm. And do you think these people in power really understand the issue? And how can we get them to not just make legal changes like these code blue changes? Not until they have a dialogue with impacted Mm -hmm. and poor people 
on a general level without asking them to vote for them. Yeah. When they have that normal dialogue and they ask them, what are you suffering from? Because if you ask that politician, he may be suffering from the fact that the garbage truck that personally comes to his block did not take his recyclables. This person might be worrying about the lead that's in their pipes. Yeah. This person may be worrying about his son got shot by waiting on the school bus. These are serious issues that are not talked about by any of these stakeholders, right? So let's not talk your self-interest. Let's talk community interest. And when you're ready to have that dialogue, come see me. You can Google my name. You can say Shiloh, New Jersey, you know, and I'm here to talk and open to speak with all you because we're at that juncture. We put in enough years. Shiloh publicly has put in about five years. And before that, as an activist, I put in over a decade. So you add that up. That's like 20, 15, 16 years out here. And I've learned from the greatest people to work in these streets, from the homeless people that have taught me skills to keep me alive, to executive directors and people working with all different levels of capacity in homelessness, from federal to state to county and to municipal and to grassroots, you know? And I'm just stepping into this. I'm just stepping into this, meaning honestly and, and focused with an intention to help a community. Not, there's nothing, I'm not doing this for any self-glorification. I'm not doing this for press. I'm not doing this for anything. I'm doing this for the fact that a lot of my friends I can't talk to right now. And they're gone. And if a policy was just, they could be here today. And that's what I'm really talking to. And openly to take it from right there and keep that open narrative locally and nationally. A Poor People's Campaign is getting together for June 20, 2020 to organize a march to talk about these systemic injustices. So we're here. Come talk to us. Shiloh is available. Not just me. I have a public health director. I have a community director that volunteer, a volunteer coordinator, secretary, have environmental justice people. You know, there's a lot of different folks. We have a coalition, a complete coalition from students to formerly homeless to interfaith people to soccer moms <laughs> to whatever you want it. We're here. If I could train the dog to carry bag lunches anywhere in the streets and then come back and get some more, I would, mm -hmm. you know. So that's it. Engineers, any any major, there's a thousand ways to creatively help the homeless. We yeah. can get a drone right now to drop off in the middle of the hood yeah. right now. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, um, I'm here. And then, I mean, we're doing, Shiloh's been doing all this with with also facing its own challenges of its own. I mean. Talk about it. The, <laughs> if we're going to talk about the Sunday outreach table to at the New Brunswick train station. Yes, yes. Um, since October, NJ Transit Police have consistently prevented the organization mm -hmm. from using an area directly outside the entrance to the station mm. um, that is covered by an outdoor roof, mm -hmm. um, a location Shiloh had already been using for over four to five years. Yeah. Um, the move by NJ Transit forced Shiloh to move across the parking lot to an area on the sidewalk adjacent mm -hmm. to the Johnson & Johnson building, basically forcing all of the food and resources to face the elements. Um, and in December, the organization held a rally demanding that um, they immediately regain access to the location directly outside the station, um, bringing out dozens of people to stand in solidarity with the homeless community. Are there any updates you want to give on this situation? Only update is that the commissioner did call me back and left a very warm, touching message and um, I want to get back to him, but I'm dealing with no sleep because I'm doing overnight after yeah. overnight and then following <laughs> up with case management in the morning, still on no sleep. So we'll, we'll definitely um, follow up on that. It's very critical to us. Nonetheless, our agenda is and shall always be until it's accomplished to have our own safe space 365. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where we're at. And that's what the table, the table represents the symbolism, uh, symbology, where yeah. symbolism, excuse mm -hmm. my French and English and Dutch <laughs> and whatnot. But that, that the table is a social justice move. That table says to us that to the community and to the city of New Brunswick that there is still homelessness. There is still a problem. There's still more than 15 people in these streets. Yeah. And the train station is a significant it's a kind of like a historical, historically yes. significant spot for the homeless. It's in New technically Brunswick. a historic building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a historic building. I think the sons of the revolution are protecting it right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Nonetheless, that sandstone is really pretty, you yeah. know. And the British built that wall or whatnot of the someone, right? So now here we are. Yes, it's historic because of the fact. Um, Burlington, no, Burlington, Bordentown, I believe. Bordentown train station, something. Not Bordentown. Uh it's with a B, <laughs> Burlington, I believe. But nonetheless, that train station has been set up to be a shelter. It's documented where, okay, you can go to the train station, you can sleep on this side of the cubby, 
and you'll be fine. So New Brunswick was similar to that because there was lax policies in play that, oh, you can sleep up here, just don't violate, you know, people's rights and keep the peace and all that. And that was disturbed, meaning that when people were waiting for the late night train to come, people harassed them, people would drink and other type of style, not other type of criminal mischief would, would manifest itself and it broke the trust. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. they moved downstairs. And when they moved downstairs, there used to be an open window where Dunkin' Donuts was at. And then me being a great master canvasser that I am, started to ask, you know, get get a couple coffees for people, bring dining hall food for my friends on campus that were supporting me while I was running around and trying to stay safe or whatever. And it's like Dunkin' Donuts then shut the bathroom down, right? And then they put the police in the back. Why? An opiate crisis. Someone overdosed, overdosed and died. Then they tried to blame me <laughs> on uh, at nine o'clock from what nine thirty to eleven, blaming me, saying that the traffic is stopping people from going to Dunkin' Donuts, which is very false, due to the fact that we buy boxes of Joe, we buy food for the homeless from there, so we add to the revenue at night. We never block the walkway, and if we do, they may sit there for what a three second time, like a three minute uh, time yeah. frame eat some food and leave and you can still walk around them. Yeah. But we're not blocking the elevator because the elevator's all the way around the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we clean up. There's never been an issue. And we even eat, feed the end transit. So once again, this is a policy that's being in place because they're criminalizing homelessness. It had nothing to do with the construction. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the Dunkin' Donuts contractor. Because when you looked that bill up, you were like, so how are we violating? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I've definitely, yeah, I've, been involved in those kind of discussions. Um, And I thank you and I thank other organizations and and journalists and press people that have reached out to N-Transit and continue to reach out until there's an agreement because the compromise is I don't deal with that pretty well. It's because I'm not compromising. I I can't compromise. And it's also, this is, I mean, as much as this is a fight against NJ Transit here at the New Brunswick station, the way they answer this question is going to affect train stations across the state because i mean they are sites where homeless people go to 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 get shelter during the day um and just ensure that they have safety um so it's definitely something that we have to try to keep fighting as much as we can yeah and let's let's talk to our sisters and brothers in the interfaith world as well as in other organizations in trenton they face this harassment all the time but they have avenues in elizabeth opposite of that in a positive direction they enable the homeless and they give them newspapers maybe get them a job. Maybe hire them to clean up the street while they're hanging out in the street. Maybe offer them a free meal. Maybe give some dignity. (laughs) Maybe make another bus. (laughs) You know? What are these things? These are simple things that anyone would want if you pulled up. You would want housing, you would want clothing, you would want shelter, you want food. So these human rights have to be put in perspective and we have to now take 3511. You need to write your local congressman. You need to go down to your city council to your board of freeholders meetings and get active. You have a lot of power as students. We have a lot of power as just citizens of the United States. We have power as just humans. But there's no power unless we get united on this, on this issue because this is not just. And poverty is affecting not just the homeless in the inner city. It's affecting people in the suburbs as well. Yeah. Concentrated poverty, yes, is more dense in the inner city, but it's moving out into the suburb. And 140-something million people are affected by poverty. Yeah. You know? And what, 250,000 die or something a year mm-hmm. due to living below the poverty line? That's in America. That's not across seas. Yeah. So we're like a giant third world country. That's true. But with a surplus. Because every food that we waste, if collected and cleaned and analyzed, could be given out and can feed the whole world. Shout out to Food Not Bombs for that. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. So I stand on brothers' shoulders like that. I stand on the executive director of Food Not Bombs, Anthony Prisson, National Union of Homelessness. And we're fighting on the the front lines in California where there's like militarized coups against the homeless. Yeah. You know? So this is going to be a hard pill for a lot of people to, to swallow. But... Cornell West, Cornell West once told me there's a price to pay for speaking the truth, but there's a bigger price to pay for living a lie. You know, I got to stay and stay strong. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to stay strong and speak this truth because if no one does it, the homeless are too busy surviving and Shiloh is too busy trying to give them a life again, a better quality of life again. And that's what it's all about. And we need your help. We need the public's help. We need 
the municipal government's help to come speak to me as the CEO and founder of Shiloh and not a person just to give you data because that's not a human right perspective because you can focus on the data, but then how are you removing the barrier of the alleged client you're dealing with? Yeah, You're not. You're just getting, oh, here's your birth certificate, here's your birthday, I'll see you next week. And then you tell the person the resource, but you don't tell them how to use the resource or where the resource is. That's not just. So, um, We're going to come back after this yeah. quick break um, to discuss maybe how um, this kind of criminalization of both homelessness and the very act of supporting the homelessness is more representative of a larger criminalization of homelessness mm. um, in New Brunswick. Um, but this is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. We're talking with Walter Harris, the founder and executive director of Shiloh. Hi, my name is Luke. I am on the Rutgers Ski and Snowboard team, and I am one in five. Two out of three Rutgers students stop at three drinks or fewer, and one in five don't even drink at all. There are always alternatives to the pressures of drinking. Weekend trips, student clubs, and intramural sports are just a couple of things that can be more interesting and fun than partying. This message is brought to you by the Rutgers Are You Sure campaign and 90.3 The Core. Mm and then just like going into like different places people can fuck it. Hey dude, I'm pretty glad it got us all together to burn off some steam from exams. My life's just been all nighters this week. I'm so ready to chill out. Yeah, no problem. My house is always open for parties as long as people follow house rules. Bring a snack, bring a game, but no drinks. So we can just relax without all that drama. <laughs> yeah, no one have a problem with that unless they're afraid of partying with that alcohol or something. Yo bro, I brought the Bacardi! Don't be that guy. It takes confidence to relax without having to drink. But when you have friends who get it, they still know how to have fun. This message is brought to you by the Rutgers Are You Sure campaign and 90.3 The Core. Hey. Hello. Hey, just calling to check up on you. You were crazy last night. It's all over Facebook. Wait, what? What are you talking about? What? Don't you remember? We went to the club, then to the bars. Wait, all this is on Facebook? Oh, no. Yeah, you were going shot for shot with that one guy. Wait, how much did you have last night anyway? I don't know. I can't even remember. This is so embarrassing. Well, at least you know how much fun you had now. Yeah, right. Binge drinking doesn't have to be the only kind of drinking. Two out of three Rutgers students stop at three drinks or fewer, and one in five don't even drink at all. This message is brought to you by the Rutgers Are You Sure campaign and 90.3 The Core. My name is Caitlin, and I work at the Douglas Tutoring Center, and I am one in five. Two out of three Rutgers students stop at three drinks or fewer, and one in five don't even drink at all. There are always alternatives to the pressures of drinking. Weekend trips, student clubs, and intramural sports are just a couple of things that can be more interesting and fun than partying. This message is brought to you by the Rutgers Are You Sure campaign and 90.3 The Core. Hey! Hello? Hey, just calling to check up on you. You were crazy last night. It's all over Facebook. Wait, what? What are you talking about? What? Don't you remember? We went to the club, then to the bars. Wait, all this is on Facebook? Oh no. Yeah, you were going shot for shot with that one guy. Wait, how much did you have last night anyway? I don't know. I can't even remember. This is so embarrassing. Well, at least you know how much fun you had now. Yeah, right. Binge drinking doesn't have to be the only kind of drinking. Two out of three Rutgers students stop at three drinks or fewer, and one in five don't even drink at all. This message is brought to you by the Rutgers Are You Sure campaign and 90.3 The Core. And welcome back to 
to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. Um, We're discussing some recent changes in the Code Blue emergency shelter law here in New Jersey, as well as just the kind of general experiences and challenges that homeless people are facing locally um, here in New Brunswick, Piscataway, and Highland Park, and across Middlesex County. Um, We're joined by the founder and executive director of Shiloh, which stands for Supporting the Homeless, Innovatively Loving Others, with Walter Harris. Um, And we were just discussing the kind of situation that Shiloh is facing at the New Brunswick train station, where NJ Transit police um, since October have been consistently preventing Shiloh from accessing um, the necessary and adequate space at the train station um, to do their weekly Sunday outreach table initiatives. Um, And they've since been trying to engage with NJ Transit more, pressure them to make sure that, you know, they have adequate space to continue this this vital outreach initiative. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts, Walter, mm-hmm. on how this criminalization of not just homelessness, but the very act of supporting the homeless um, is reflective of the larger ways that the homeless are criminalized um, in New Brunswick and, and across New Jersey, too. Well, let's get right to the meat of it. Busking. Busking. <laughs> Panhandling. Busking, for those that don't know, is playing music and soliciting funds for you playing music. Panhandling is literally publicly asking for cash. Yeah. Right? But there's an ordinance that was passed by the ACLU. So let's go back to policy again. He's publicly known. You can Google him as well. Another homeless person who's standing right now most likely on George Street with his sign that he's legally allowed to hold, that he's fought with for years and within his brain is the same vision he wants a shelter for all however if you're caught in the act of giving this man money you may not be pressed right then and there but you may be pressed in the public by the police saying leave him alone then mysteriously um coin things popped up in locations where the homeless were panhandling that's criminalization of homelessness yeah. because they have a right to do so. It may not look pretty. So if it doesn't look pretty, talk to me. Invest in the plan. That is not my plan, but it is the social need and the confession of every person suffering in the street. Yeah. And the criminalization is denying that right, is denying the right to say, you have a place to go, a safe space for you to go any evening because you can create a safe space for newly arriving students every year. You can knock down old Victorian houses and resurrect campuses and gymnasiums and dance halls and whatever, dance dance gymnasiums and all that, but we can't build a cottage and a little small enclosure outside of it, maybe for a farm. We can't make a biodome, <laughs> you know, and put cots inside and so they can garden in the biodome and not be out in the elements. So the criminalization is denying those rights. But another way specifically is that what if I don't get along with the staff at Eliza Promise and I get upset because you won't allow me to use a bathroom? It's a public bathroom, but it's locked. There's plenty of plethoras of volunteers, right? Delegate them to open the bathroom. Delegate them to open the bathroom. Not everyone's going to go use a needle when they go into the bathroom. Get over the stereotype. Clean the bathroom after. They're supposed to be getting hours for doing voluntary work. Mm -hmm. That's humbling. It teaches you life skills. It's criminalizing. It's a very minute criminalizing, but it affects because guess what happens? If I don't have a public place to pee, if I don't have a public place to pee, then where do I go? Outside, then I get a a charge for pissing in the public. That's criminalizing me. Right? You force me to go outside. You want me to pee in the corner in the building? Right? Then it's a worse charge. So that's criminalizing. It's forcing someone to break the law to be moral when the law itself is immoral. Yeah. You know? So it's like, how do, we, how do you fight that? You highlight these stories that are not being told. You talk about those things. You bring them up in community discussions. You bring them to city council. You bring them to your professor. You bring them to three of your friends and you form a coalition. You send me a text. You send you a text. You send any member of Shiloh. You see 
in the Instagram a message and we'll come talk with you, have coffee with you, come to the dining hall, meet you in the park, have a powwow, whatever it may be. We would like to know because you also represent this community and you also have a perspective. You have a voice and maybe you don't like what you see and we'll come understand and have a creative conflict with you and say, you know what? Well, this is all he has. I'm, I'm sorry he's sleeping next to where you park your car. I'm sorry. Did anything ever go missing? No? Okay. Well, next time, why don't you just leave a little portion of your lunch for him or something and say, hey, man, keep your head up. That positive affirmation might change his life. But for five years, you avoided even talking to him. But the one year you said that might have changed his life and maybe gave him a hug. So let me stop. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. It's not only on the policy. It's not only on changing policies. It's about changing ourselves and how we approach the homelessness, too. It's going to make a monumental difference. One more thing, if I may. Yeah. It's the perception. It's perception because systemically, we're talking systems here. Systemically, it's, oh, it's wrong to be poor. But if we all ask ourselves right now, if there was a $300 emergency, would you be okay with that? I definitely would not be. <laughs> be. <laughs> right. So that's what I'm saying. We're living in poor. Yeah. We're, there's yeah. no middle class. Yeah. So back in the day, poor people's campaign, older folks, moms, moms, would invite people over and be like, hey, you got macaroni and cheese at your house? You got mashed potatoes? Yo, you got, po- you got potatoes? Okay. Let's meet in my kitchen at six. You bring your kids, I bring my kids, and we'll work it out. When's the last time a family in the Ameri- United States, except for on, what's the, what's the show? Blue Bloods? <laughs> except for on Blue Bloods, where you sat at the dinner table and had a meal with your family? Yeah. Or even your neighbors, too. I think mm-hmm. we've definitely lost a sense of community, too, that you're speaking about. So what have I done with the homeless community, yeah. which you witnessed? Yeah. I brought that sense of community because there was no sense of intimacy. There's no sense of safe space. So I gave them a sense of safe space. Then I provided the necessities that they were scared of and that they're vulnerable to. Here's something to fight your opiate problem. Here's something for your peace of mind or yoga. You know? So these things are decriminalizing the way people perceive homelessness. Because now you're facilitating these workshops as an outsider, right? And guess who the expert is? Not you who studied five years in social work, master's in social work. Not you, the PhD student who's a sociologist and knows everything about W.E.B. Du Bois and everything like that and double conscious and whatever it may be, right? The expert is the homeless man that you're, that you're secretly writing a paper about and never told them anything. Yeah. That's the expert, you know? So... What in res- what can we do in response to getting this data from this man to help him in his dignity walk? Besides writing a paper and getting a good grade and moving on and making a decent salary. And then when you drive through New Brunswick, you see that man at the bus stop. Yeah. What can you do? Are you going to stop because you feel guilty and go buy him a cup of coffee and then keep it pushing? Probably not. So what can you do? You can love from a distance. And how you can love from a distance, you could give up some of those old shoes in your clo- in your closet that still have some tread on the bottom. You can give up some clean socks. You can go purchase something you really you feel really moved. You could get some basic life skill stuff like hygiene kits. You could take your service clubs on campus. You can reach out to Mark because Mark's an environmental justice beast, campaign leader. You can meet with him, and he had a beautiful idea of going down by the river where the homeless are, help have them help you do the river cleanup and then have a lunch together in solidarity with the homeless and just have a general conversation to desensitize just to sensitize yourself to what you thought the stereotype may have been yeah you know that's it next time you see someone on campus find that free hug dude and tell him to give the homeless a free hug yeah you know and these are simple gestures the dining hall is throwing the food out one of you rogue activists on campus challenge this policy that is unjust I love the horses. I love I love the pigs. You know what I'm saying? But their value is not to the level of a human, personally. Yeah. In some suburbs, the dog is more important than the human on the corner. That's true. Forgive me for saying this, but some ch- from chihuahuas yeah. have glitter on their testicles. <laughs> and that's very important, right, to the owner of them, which has a higher value than actually maybe giving that man that's freezing his butt off a, ja- a, a, a blanket. And you have about 20 blankets in your linen closet. And they've been with you since 1965. Yeah. Give it up. Stop hoarding. 
give it up. Yeah. Someone that little you gave up can help so many people. Um, I think that's a really great point, and I think you're speaking to a lot of the kind of like colonial relationship that a lot of Rutgers students have with the community, um, because it's not as I think. While a lot of people don't step out of the campus, there are a lot of people who do step out, will kind of study vulnerable populations in New Brunswick, do a lot of research, mm-hmm. write a great paper, mm-hmm. and then that's the end of it. Right. And then you're kind of locking what could be really useful knowledge for people like homeless people and just locking it into like the walls of the university and yeah. not letting it actually move their life and make it better. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand just like the general narratives of homelessness, especially here in New Brunswick, and you've obviously, just, you just came from Code Blue. Um, what are some of the experiences that you've noticed, especially in the winter months right now that yeah. homeless people are facing? Ah, um, just a place to relax. Just a place to like sit down. Just a place to, uh, technically a warming center, according to the policy. After our Code Blue is operated, there's supposed to be a warming center in the municipality from where they come from. It's not happening. Yeah. It's happening very quaint, very very not frequent. And that's wrong. That's wrong. So those who are not going to be named to dial my name. Simple as that. Yeah. You know? Because if there's not courage, if there's not courage enough to speak on the behalf, we're going to find, unfortunately another person dead on George Street. Unfortunately, another person dead by the river. Unfortunately, another gentleman snatched up by ICE for trying to support his, his child who's a legal citizen here. Yeah. You know? These are, these are things that happen every day. There's programs in place. But we can't just play with these populations. We have to literally engage them. And the notion that they should come to you is once again immoral, especially yeah. when there's an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why is you don't see the epidemic? That's the highest form of criminalization. By the time you wake up, what do I always say? Here comes the Gestapo to sweep. Because they do not, Lord forbid, the Johnson & Johnson employees get to see the homeless on the train. Lord forbid they get to see them while they're walking down around the corner to the office. Or Lord forbid that they take the parking deck and pass by someone that's sleeping there. Oh, gosh. What's the remedy, though? Build a shelter. Give it to an organization that's highly qualified to do so, like Shiloh. Yeah. And we'll have the poor in for over, right now as we speak, thirty a, a, a volunteer pool of like 30 people, an interfaith coalition of all different faith groups from here to like, <laughs> from here to like, you want me to, from like here to like DC yeah. to wherever. Shiloh's not going anywhere. We're not. If I get terminally ill, Whatever it may be, Shiloh will exist because we're here to defend the human rights of people and there's people that will fight for that right to their dying breath. And we will not give up until there is a safe space for these for the vulnerable population and not just mean homeless, that's the working class poor and anyone that meets all these eligibility requirements where there's grant money to help them. Because that affordable housing gap, that, that national shortage doesn't have to be short. There's examples in Europe, buying hotels. There's examples in New York buying hotels. There's examples in other places buying tiny homes. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different ways to be creative here. But if we're not willing to let go of old belief systems that are killing people and the outcome is deaf and it's publicly known that the outcome is deaf and a debilitating thing, or like you said in the beginning, they're just outsourcing you. I can't deal with this problem. Get on the Greyhound. Have a nice life. Yeah. How does that solve the problem if that young man or that older man or that older woman or that young woman was a her family was 10 generations in New Brunswick? Now you just destroyed the whole generation. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, but I mean. <laughs> There's obviously opportunities now to work against these systems, and that's what Shiloh's doing. Um, so besides running Code Blue, um, and obviously we encourage people to go out to Code Blue to volunteer, to connect with Shiloh, um, because we could use all the help we could get with mm-hmm. Code Blue, are there other initiatives and outreach efforts um, yes. that Shiloh was currently organizing that people can plug into? Uh, well, we're currently organizing. We have an open call to anyone in the medical field to come down to South... Um, 
220 South 6th Avenue in Holland Park to the community center during voluntarily during the hours of 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Anytime between those hours, you are more than welcome to voluntarily just announce yourself and say, hey, I have medical experience because we also have another gentleman on staff who has medical experience. So we have a trained therapist, a uh, PhD therapist and whatnot. Myself, I have a background in case management and other things. So that's the first ask. The second ask is that organization that has worked with us in the past. We ask that you try to pick commitments between Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we'll still need your help, your support, but we're trying to fill in those gaps where we're not out there. Shout out to other groups that we've influenced, like MCMC um, and the Dawa Outreach, uh, El Wadi Masjid, um, North, North Brunswick Islamic Center, uh, Reformed Church of Highland Park, United Methodist Church for doing the welcome table that's happening tonight from 7 to 10 for the homeless that's listening or for anyone else that wants to get involved in another ministry that's involved with the homeless community, you know. Uh, but every Sunday night at the train station between 9.30 and 11, you're more than welcome to drop off clothes. There is a shortage of clothes sometimes because the thrift store unfortunately doesn't have what we need all the time and our funding is usually forced and focused on turning over people some from motels to housing to food to giving transportation to appointments to all those type of things and sometimes gift cards for food you know so our, we're completely 100% transparent what you give we can come with you and give it out or you can give and just specify what you gave it for and it will be used for that purpose or something to better the quality of life of the homeless community but more or less, Fridays we prepare our breakfast. Uh, right now we're going through a little location change. So if there's any faith groups willing to host us on any given Saturday, reach out to shilohnewjersey at gmail.com. And um, our most upcoming thing right now will be the Shiloh fundraiser for March 18th. So if you are a performer, shout out to Verbal Mayhem and their performers. If y'all want to perform for a good cause and impact your community, Come show some love and self-express at the Above Art Studio, March 18th from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Shiloh will be in the building. It is our first ever uh, Shiloh Showcase fundraiser. You know, uh, adults only, though. <laughs> That's it. Nice, nice. So, nice. so thank lot, you. A lo- lot of things going on. Um, definitely a lot of opportunities for people in the community to plug in and support what is um, an amazing effort to really support the homeless yeah. community in a really meaningful and impactful way. Um, and we're going to continue to follow these changes in the law um, and hopefully ensure that you know these programs are funded, get mm. the material support they need, yes. um, and also begin to build permanent, sustainable places for homeless people to get the support they need. Yeah. Um, but this has been Core of the Matter. Walter, thank you so much thank for you. coming thank on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, this is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. If you have any questions about this show, you can also email us um, at publicaffairs at thecore.fm. Um, and if you also have any ideas um, for issues or organizations you want to get on our air, you can also email us there as well. Um, but stay tuned for more Core Radio after this. And um, again, this is 90.3 The Core.